This is episode number 20 of the Individual One podcast. And for the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We're broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. And this is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media has lost their minds and can no longer be objective if they ever could be. And the conservative, as I refer to them now, state-run media has been compromised and completely co-opted. We, however, at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Join our Twitter followers at our Twitter handle, which is Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. Much of the focus of today's episode will be an interview with Ben Smith. Ben is the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed has played an integral role in several key stories in the Russia investigation regarding their influence into the 2016 presidential campaign. And I, I want to talk to Ben about uh, several of them in as much detail as we can get. For those who uh, don't remember, it was BuzzFeed that published the so-called Steele dossier back just before Trump was inaugurated. The Steele dossier, in the dossier that Donald Trump now likes to pretend was uh, basically a, a, a coup attempt uh, that it was put forward by Hillary Clinton, paid for by her, that John McCain uh, made it uh, public. Uh, of course, my big question about the dossier and, and if this was all part of an insurance policy or somehow a big lie to get Trump, then why didn't we learn about it during the election? <laughs> If you are, if you're if you're going to create a fraud, a hoax in order to keep somebody from being president, it's probably a pretty good idea to let people know before they vote, which never actually happened and didn't happen until BuzzFeed published it in January of 2017. We'll talk to Ben about that as well as their very controversial and I believe unfairly maligned report that Donald Trump effectively suborned the perjury to Congress of Michael Cohen over details regarding the Trump Moscow uh, Tower, the Trump Tower in Moscow project, which I now believe was ongoing throughout most, if not all, of the 2016 campaign. So without further ado, let's get to Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. Ben Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for a number of reasons for a long time, and there are so many things that have happened with BuzzFeed and Donald Trump and the Russian investigation. And I want to go through chronologically to get your, your take on why you did the things that you did and where things stand now. So let's start all the way at the beginning. This was before technically Donald Trump even became president. And BuzzFeed took a lot of flack, though not for me, uh, for having published the so-called Steele dossier. And I think that this uh, situation, while Trump has made a lot of hay out of it, was very much misunderstood. Before I give my take on it, could you tell our listeners why it is that you guys at BuzzFeed decided to publish the dossier? Yeah, um, you know, and so the dossier, just to sort of refresh, that this is, we're, we're talking early January of 20, uh, 2017, and the dossier at that point had been, you know, I mean, a lot of this has been reported, but a, a sort of former aide to John McCain had, you know, collected a, a, from Christopher Steele, and, and there was a whole, um, and many leading journalists and intelligence officials and government officials and members of Congress and sort of Washington, D.C. chattering class members had copies of it um, and were talking about it. In some cases, we're kind of making decisions based on it, like you saw the distance that John McCain was keeping from Trump. And it was worth wondering why and the explanation was this document. And so I think we were already thinking like, huh, like at some point, public probably ought to know this thing exists because it's affecting the way their country is being run. Um, then when it was briefed to two presidents of the United States by the you know director of the CIA, I believe, um, that seemed like if the, you know whatever the threshold is for what make what, what is a important public document, like briefing it to two presidents probably crosses that threshold. Um, and so when CNN reported that briefing, I think we we that sort of resolved any doubts we had about whether this 
court public document, and and so we published it. Were you surprised at that time by the criticism that you took for publishing it? You know, I kind of was surprised, honestly. Like it, because I because I think that I mean, this is journalism is this kind of reflexively conservative profession more than people realize. I'm not, you know, small C conservative, just sort of like people don't like new things or change. I mean, it's right. probably true of most professions. Um, but that it, but I think that I didn't really understand what the alternative people proposed was, which is that, like, our job is to keep things secret from our audience. And sort of because they're, you know, because if they see them, it will blind them. Like, I don't really understand what people were suggesting. And I think as the year wore on, the notion that this document should remain secret as Devin Nunes and Adam Schiff waged this huge fight over it as, you know, the FBI and then Robert Mueller investigate the allegations that this sort of core element of the thing, you know, which is not, you know, which is a complicated document, right? I mean, we certainly didn't present it as the gospel. We said it had errors and wasn't verified. Um, but that this document wasn't important seemed totally ludicrous. Well, the part that confused me, Ben, and I don't think has gotten nearly enough play in this, is that, first of all, as you've already suggested, you guys weren't saying that this is true, what's in the Steele dossier. You're saying that this document was having influence over the way things were transpiring in Washington. And also, this is the part that never, no one ever talked about. If, in fact, the, the Russian government had leverage over our incoming president, as the, the dossier suggested— by disclosing that publicly, you diminish, if not eliminate, that leverage. So, in theory, you were actually. I can't say that I, can't say that I was really. Uh, I, I was really. Um, I can't say I was really focused on that. Somebody did tweet after. Uh, you know, I think I'm not going to try to do the meme, but somebody did, did tweet a reference to the Leroy Jenkins meme, Jenkins meme after that that I thought was like making the point you just made. But I think I won't try to. Well, but I think it's an. It's, right it, it may not have been your motivation, Ben, but it's an important point because people have, including the president, have said this was outrageous because it was unverified and it may have turned out not to be uh, true in many parts. But I, I'm like from a from a. Forget about the idea that this was somehow treasonous. This was the opposite of treason. This was actually patriotic, in my view, because whether it was your intention or not, if that leverage existed. It, it was diminished. So that was part of the reason why I supported uh, huh. you guys. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, I really think that, like, just, and I think people misread how journalists think about this stuff a lot, and, and I'm maybe a bit of a purist here, but we were not sitting around gaming out the political consequences of it. We just thought it was something our audience deserved to say. So you don't regret at all uh, publishing the dossier, regardless of how true or untrue the, the details in it are? No. Okay. Now let's move forward uh, quite a long period of time uh, to a few months ago when uh, you guys report in a, in a very explosive way that, uh, and I, I want to make sure I get the, the wording right here because it's critical. So why don't, you, why don't you tell the audience what it is you guys reported with regard to whether or not uh, Mueller had evidence that Trump had suborned Michael Cohen's testimony with regard to when the Trump Tower project in Moscow had ended during the 2016 campaign. I appreciate the precision. Um, we reported that Trump that, that Mueller's office had evidence in the form of Cohen's testimony and of other documents that we didn't characterize that um, that that Cohen that Trump had directed Cohen to lie about exactly when the negotiations with, with Moscow were going on over this what would have been by the way and this I think this is a sidelight that is dwelt on enough over a huge huge real estate development in Moscow it would have been the tallest building in Europe. I mean, that's like a real building. Um, and, uh, you know, Ivanka was going to have a spa. Putin was getting the penthouse. I mean, it was like kind of this crazy fantasy project. And they were negotiating about on it all through the summer of, you know, into the summer of, 20, um, of 2016, as Trump was out there denying he had business in Russia. Um, I mean, and, and I think actually, like, that's all very interesting. Like, it's sort of, if you want to understand why is Trump out there lying about this stuff, one alternative to a massive global conspiracy is trying to get a real estate project done and it does seem pretty in character anyway well what um but what we reported right was that cohen cohen said he'd, he'd been directed and 
Mueller then released this quite narrow statement saying our report wasn't accurate and not really saying what. Okay, hold, hold on a second. Hold, man, yeah. I want to get I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. So so when you report that, you, you guys were very very confident that you had the goods on that, correct? I mean, you 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 had yeah. no hesitation at that time, correct? I mean, we understood that it was a really serious thing to report, but also, you know, but also, yeah, we had two senior law enforcement sources who were, and we're not, we weren't kind of playing games with that characterization telling us that. So you were very confident in that report, correct? Yes. Yeah. Now, now, is there, now before we get to what Mueller did, was is there anything that you based that confidence on at the time that has changed over the last several months since that, that decision? No. Nothing. So, so there's nothing that you've learned since that would have changed the equation that you made in going ahead with that story about uh, Trump suborning uh, Cohen's perjury. Oh, I mean, I would have loved to have a paragraph that said, and by the way, um, we we have a secret copy of the Mueller report, and we know that, that he's going to decide to toss the question of obstruction to Congress. I mean, you can always know more. But th- but, but specifically right. but as no, far but as... No, but but on, the, on the narrow question of did Michael Cohen tell him that Trump told him to lie, and was there documents backing that up? Like, clearly. Okay, so so you make that call to, to go with this explosive story. The media goes bananas. This is everywhere. And Mueller is quiet. You know, just to be clear, you guys went to, to Mueller's team before you published and said, hey, any comment? And they, they, they didn't give you a comment, correct? Right, which has been, you know, we broke a series of huge stories about the power. And... And, and got no comment, and and had gone to them and said, "Hey, you're not going to comment on this one either, are you?" And they said, "You know," they replied a couple minutes later and said, "Nope." They later suggested that had we, you know, that there was a different form of request we could have filed and gotten kind of a smoke signal that they disagreed. But I don't know. You're not buying that. I, you know, I just don't know. I know I believe it. I, I mean, okay. it certainly wasn't our experience, but I, you know. Okay, so maybe they're doing that with other reporters. Okay, so for several hours, in fact, into the next day, I guess if my memory serves me correctly, uh, there's no there's no uh, response from Mueller. Then all of a sudden, Mueller issues this exceedingly rare paragraph. When when that happened, take me through what was going through your mind and what your reaction and the reaction to BuzzFeed was there. I mean, you know, it was sort of. I think I and the other reporters on the story were sort of of two minds because you know this was not for any of us our sort of first rodeo. You know, Jason Leopold was a Pulitzer finalist last year. Anthony Cormier won the Pulitzer two years ago. Um, we have all been in the position of having government officials say to us, your story's wrong. You say, what's wrong about the story? And they say, we're not telling. And that always means the same thing, which is they're picking some very narrow lane in which to try to deny a story whole cloth for whatever reason. Um, but they can't actually say the substance is wrong, so they're finding something else. Um, and so I think on one hand, we were pretty confident based on our reporting, and we went back to our sources, um, that, you know, we had been back to our sources since the story was published, that is, that the story was accurate. Um, on the other hand, you know, Bob Mueller occupies, or at least, well, occupied, right, this totally singular place in American life where, where you had serious people suggesting we should, like, retract based on the vague denial from a prosecutor. Like, we should just apologize for, you know, sort of, like, kind of infringing on his sphere of power and go out of business or something. Okay, I don't even understand what <laughs> well, that suggestion was. It seems so out of line with the kind of tradition of American journalism. Now, as we stand here today, do you have any idea or, or do even a theory as to what Mueller was referring to when he was perceived as having shot down your your report on Trump suborning Cohen's perjury? You know, I, I, I do not want to sort of say I'm inside their head on what characterization they were contesting. Um, the I do think it is, like, well, you know, there, certainly we've learned more since. Um, and I think, you know, his decision to not reach a conclusion on obstruction is really interesting, right? Like, I mean, one thing that was clear at the time, but I thought not didn't get enough attention, was he was under enormous political pressure that day. Like Congress, it was just off to the races saying, well, if this is true, let's impeach him. Which, and, and if Mueller really thinks this, and, and our story did not say this is what Robert Mueller thinks. We did not make any attempt to get inside his head. But I think that people read it that way a bit, and, and I think he felt that he was in control situation. 
or I think he, I mean, I don't say what he felt. Obviously, Congress was sort of running away with it. And meanwhile, he was reportedly getting these calls from the White House and, and from the Attorney General. And so I think they, he was trying to, or what he did had the effect of sort of putting out a fire politically for him. No, I can see that. And, and certainly now that we know that, at least we think we know, that he made no uh, ruling or decision on obstruction and, and Barr ran with that, uh, all of that is consistent with the idea if they didn't want it out there, that obstruction had been proven because then that box is Mueller in. And clearly at that point, he was probably already thinking that this is where he was going to come down on that. So all that, that, all that makes sense. But you guys... Yeah, there was, there was this other subsidiary issue, which I do think is interesting, of you know, can you really charge the president with obstruction if there's not an under if there's not underlying collusion? Well, like, but, I think that's a really that's a question. Well, the question Barr raised. I don't know how Mueller sees that, but it is a reasonable. Like if if you know if ultimately the obstruction was because Trump was lying to protect his political campaign about a business deal. You know what? That's is still that? obstruction. Like, that's still obstruction. Number sure. one and number two, obstruction, more with, more important. Obstruction, but without a crime under the obstruction. Well, but but hold on, Ben. But but I mean, we haven't seen the report yet. But to me, part of my problem with Barr is he seems to be making a rule that if a president obstructs justice successfully enough to where you can't prove an underlying crime, then therefore it's not illegal. That's insane, in, in my view. If that's We don't know that that's what happened, but that's a, that's a very dangerous precedent in my mind. All right, let's go forward to— I do think, I do think that's an important part of this thing, and, and, and that theory of the law is, is, is an interesting and important part of how these people are making their decisions. Sure. So let's go forward to Michael Cohen's testimony. Uh, so you guys express confidence that your reporting is still right. He he makes the very dramatic testimony in front of Congress. And like everything with Cohen, there's two sides to it. He kind of backs up your story and he kind of doesn't. What was your interpretation of Cohen's public testimony on this issue? You know, my interpretation was that he backed up our story and that people who, for whatever reason, including just they were kind of dug in on the other side of this argument, wanted to play semantic game played semantic games. There was a specific thing where he said that he was not directly instructed. We said he had been directed. Obviously, those two words come from the same root. They mean totally different. You know, like they, they weren't, well, the one thing didn't really bear on the other. He said Trump told, the other word he used was told me to lie. That good enough for me. You know, that matches up pretty well with what we reported. But he also said it wasn't directly. We had not said directly, you know, and and I think it, the bar got sort of raised to, well, did Trump say to him, Michael, I hereby instruct you to lie? And if not, no way. And so I, I guess I actually thought that I was sort of surprised and a little disappointed by the coverage. The coverage is also almost entirely of his opening, which is normal in these hearings, of his opening statement. And as the hearing wore on, if you watched his exchange with Jerry Connolly from Virginia, but he laid out pretty clearly what happened there. Well, let's talk about that, because the part of why I have defended the BuzzFeed story and still believe that in its essence it is true is that no one has provided me an alternative explanation for how it is that Michael Cohen suddenly decided not just to lie, but to specifically lie that it was January of 2016, which is before the Republican primaries begin in the 2016 election. That seems like an awfully amazing coincidence. This is not a yes right. or no it's, lie. It's surprisingly... Surprisingly, to tell a lie that lines up with the lies with the lies that the Trump family are telling, not under oath, by the way, but just are out there telling. Like, but, what a funny coincidence, right? Right, but... It but doesn't, I mean, it makes no sense. But did anybody, and I missed it if it happened, I'm sure you didn't miss it, which is why I'm asking you, did anyone actually ask Michael Cohen in any of his public testimonies, hey, if you lied about this, why'd you come up with January? Was that question ever asked? No, I don't think so. I mean, nobody. the other question nobody asked that I would love to get is, like, just, you know, can you put us in the room? Like, what exactly happened? You said what, then he said what, and, you know, just, I, we never got that level of detail. The part that he said that I thought was really interesting, although, again, he wasn't totally precise, was that, because, it was like, what, what words did Trump say when he was telling you to lie? You know, was it, I direct you to lie? And he said, no, he was saying, there is no Russia, there is no deal. I mean, that is pretty explicit to me. Well, especially when the two people involved in that conversation clearly know that there is a Russia and there is a deal. (laughs) And and again, and allegedly are talking about his congressional test. And the context is right. Apparently, again, the exchange isn't totally clear, but it seems like he's talking about the conversation, which they're saying that you're going to go testify. 
Well, what what do we so know? I, yeah, I, where are we on the issue of uh, what Cohen said in that testimony about Trump's lawyers effectively uh, direct or changing his testimony? What that that was a path that it seems like we've we've reached a dead end on. Where where are we on yeah, that? Yeah, but one? I think that when we when we when we reported on there being documents to support this, I think that it, it was it's not implausible to think that there might have been documents generated by lawyers in the preparation and the. And now, reportedly, in the aftermath of his testimony, I think he's now said that a Trump lawyer called him to congratulate him. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's, I mean, pretty interesting. Now, another interesting story. I also think it would be nice to get documents. I mean, we would all love to get documents to get, you know, whatever the emails and texts between lawyers were. Okay. Now, there's another story that happened in the last few days, which is partially why I asked you on the program, which has gotten almost no play. And I, I, gotta, I understand why, because, you know, Mueller's statement kind of put a toxicity over this whole issue in the media's mind. And I think Cohen doesn't have 100 percent credibility. But there was this story that Cohen had suddenly found a thumb drive and that somehow he had further evidence uh, of this. I'll, I'll put it under the, the label of suborning perjury on the Trump Tower uh, Moscow uh, project. W- what do you know about that? Well, I think the prosecutors returned his files to him, right? So he now says that he has millions and millions of documents that that had been, you know, that, that the Southern District, I guess, had a hold of the Mueller's office had had taken hold of. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't. I again, as you say, I, I totally. I mean, I think that one of the underlying dynamics here is that he's not someone you could put on a witness stand. He's a convicted perjurer. And that that's and that if you're thinking in sort of legal terms about whether you can charge someone with him as a witness, almost regardless of what the evidence is, that's a pretty high. That's a pretty heavy lift. Ben, what do you think of the issue or the theory that when it came to Cohen's testimony on the Moscow project, that it was actually Trump who flipped on Cohen rather than Cohen flipping on Trump, meaning that Trump waited to see whether or not the January lie was tenable. And then when he realized it wasn't, he provided in his answers to Mueller that it was actually far later than that, effectively allowing them to prove that Cohen perjured himself. What do you make of that? You know, we had already reported that it was going on longer. Like there were other people involved. There were other documents. And so I, I don't, I mean, I think there was this reality, and they were talking to all these Russians. They were talking to Felix Sater. They were talking not always to the most discreet people in the world. And so I think that was the biggest problem with that story, was that there were, and we published, actually, I hope your your listeners will check it out, a huge timeline of all the emails going back and forth between Trump's aides who are negotiating the deal as he denies the deal exists. So bottom line on this, you and BuzzFeed are still 100% standing by that original story that created so much controversy and which Mueller pushed back on. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And I think a lot of people since then have come around to our point of view, and by the way, your point of view, and I appreciate that, that the story stands up. And yet, though, in a lot of the media the story has been discredited, and they, and and effectively its potential uh, potency in an impeachment proceeding has probably also been greatly diminished. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. I have, I have trouble sort of looking to a potential impeachment proceeding, right? That feels pretty re- like a pretty remote possibility. I do think that there is this kind of reflective fealty to power in the media that you see, and that Mueller represented a certain, like, sort of Washington power in its highest form. And it was really remarkable just to see people just reflexively bend to it. Well, along those lines, have you been as surprised as I have been? And I have been shocked as a conservative who, who you know thinks that most of the mainstream media is liberal, that most of the mainstream media has just accepted the Bill Barr summary by and large, at least until the New York Times shifted that narrative slightly, that that, that four-page summary was just accepted as, oh, okay, well, you know, two years, uh, there's nothing there, move on. Were you, as surpri- were you as surprised as I am uh, by that reaction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's, what a strange thing. I mean, I think, yeah, I don't even really have an explanation for it. <laughs> well, what do you think... If the report is uh, far more damaging than Barr's summary portrayed, how do you think the media will react then? 
I mean, I think there's just something about this moment, right, where the pendulum always swings too far out. Mm-hmm. Like it's out of like, and 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 I think as you, I mean, I think your sure suggestion is going to swing back really hard. I mean, I think you know, it's like the, in these, even when you know, with our story, what wound up will I think wind up looking like extremely minor technical disputes get kind of magnified in this crazy pendulum swing of like, you know, and I think that's true on so many of these stories that 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 you see the you know, that, that the only reaction is overreaction. I think cable news drives a lot of that. So I, I get what you're saying with the pendulum swing, and, I, and I'm a big believer in the expectations game, and I think Trump won the expectations game up until the bar summary, but now I think he may have lost the expectations game because now anything that, that is in the report that suggests that the bar summary is not accurate I think may have more potency than it would have had before that, but we'll see. Uh, who knows what's going to happen with this in the next week or so. I think that's right. I do think that, like, you know, Rachel Maddow set up this expectation scam that there was going to be hard evidence that the president, you know, was, you know, I think a lot of people in the left had crazy expectations. Right, that they were going to prove that he was a Manchurian candidate and yeah, exactly. uh, a Russian spy and, all, yeah, that was nuts. That was crazy. Um, well, I mean, you know, that was, I mean, that was at some level elements of Steele's allegation, but I do think that in that way, Trump appropriately won the expectations game. Now, I want to ask Ben in our final moments here a, a larger question, which I think directly relates to a lot of what we just discussed. And I think BuzzFeed is an interesting example of this. I believe that the news media is fundamentally broken. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of evidence of that uh, in this entire Russian investigation in both directions. Uh, and I think part of the reason why it's broken is that the business model for news is broken. And there have been lots of layoffs, uh, including at BuzzFeed, in, in news departments where other areas uh, of the media, uh, which are not quote-unquote hard news, have been able to survive much better than that. What is your assessment of how that business model breaking for hard news has impacted journalism in general? You know, I, I don't think I really think that by that as the explanation. Like, I think that there's really strong national reporting in a way, as strong as there has ever been. Um, and, you know, some of it, like this year, subscription models are doing great and advertising is down. And we had had a couple of few really great years where we were growing really fast and people thought the times was dead, you know, and I think there's some ups and downs. But I think it's the sort of level of covering, you know, cover, aggressive coverage of the White House and of political campaigns and things like that. I think there are as many good reporters doing great work as there ever have been. And the Internet allows you to really call bullshit on stuff that's false and you know, has all these very positive qualities. I mean, there is obviously a crisis in lots of other places, local news, first of all. Um, and I think the there is something about the sort of speed of the ecosystem and what Twitter does to the conversation that are clearly interwoven with every, you know, many of the other things that are screwed up right now. But I don't think the financial crisis in the news industry is that linearly connected. Well, maybe I misspoke uh, or you didn't, I, I didn't articulate it properly. What I'm talking about here is, for instance, not only do you have fewer people working on uh, on news stories, I agree that there's still good journalism because of fragmentation. It doesn't get the same impact that it used to. But also the emphasis on speed, the the diving after everything that's trending on Twitter because it'll get clicks. It doesn't allow time for reflection. Good journalism takes time. It takes man hours. It takes money. Uh, and uh, and and frankly, you know, I think the buzz for the story we've been talking about here proves my point in that you guys did a lot of really great work. One paragraph from Mueller effectively discredits it in the minds of most of the media and the public, and it becomes a non-issue. While lots of other stories that are flat out false that fit a narrative that people like get accepted as true. And the, to me, the the, the 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 currency of the realm is now popularity and speed instead of truth. Uh, you you don't see any of that as as valid. Yeah, yeah, no, I do. It's funny. Yeah, I mean, I do see. I, I do see those as problems. I mean, I think like you saw the um, people fundamentally who didn't have any idea what they were talking about and were weighing in instantly. But I think there's this instant pressure to make up your mind and have an opinion. And the hardest thing to do right now is to say, "I'm not sure. Give me a minute." Yeah. And that's, 
a very important reflex in this business. Yeah, there's no time for that. And unfortunately, good journalism requires that. It requires a lot of things that aren't valued in today's environment. Last question for you on a fun note. Uh, I'm I'm assuming you're aware, but I'm curious. What do you think of uh, BuzzFeed having a new character on the uh, HBO uh, series uh, Veep? Oh, my God, I love it so much. I don't want to, like, spoil it for your audience, but uh, but but everything about it is 100% accurate, and um, we fully embrace it. <laughs> okay. All right, Ben Smith, <laughs> editor-in-chief of uh, BuzzFeed, thanks so much for taking the time, and uh, please keep in touch. Thank you for having me on. So my biggest takeaway from Ben Smith's comments there are that we're living in this very strange world where the outlet that knows the most about the subject, that has done the most reporting on it, stands by the story 100%, believes that the essence of it is true. I have said constantly that logic would dictate that it has to be. Otherwise, there needs to be an alternative explanation for how Cohen decides to lie to Congress that it was January of 2016, which is a key moment, because that's before the Republican primaries begin, that the Trump Tower Moscow project was ended. And yet, in the rest of the media's minds and in the public's minds, not only is this not been proven, it's been effectively discredited. And this, let's be clear, this would have theoretically, and could still theoretically, be one of the primary points for an impeachment proceeding against Donald Trump. Because suborning perjury to Congress by your personal lawyer Regardless of why it is, whether it was just simply to cover up a land deal that he lied about that would be politically inconvenient for him or something deeper than that, and I agree with Ben that it's quite possible that that's all this was, that's still still very serious. That's way more serious than the obstruction of justice for which Bill Clinton was, in fact, impeached. Way more serious. But as I've said many times, Trump benefits here from his own corruption, because there's so much, first of all, people, it gets lost in, in the storm. Also, people waited so long because they kept waiting for Mueller's final report, thinking that they're going to get this treasure trove of new evidence or new allegations, and no one wanted to jump the gun. And now some of this stuff has been forgotten. So Trump wins in all of this. That's the craziest part of this. Correct. Trump wins largely because he's so corrupt. And that this seems like small potatoes in comparison to some of the other allegations. And again, as Ben and I talked about, the expectations here were so out of control. But Ben and BuzzFeed are standing by this story. And unless there's an alternative explanation, I believe it's true. Now, is it 100 percent provable? Well, I, I guess that, you know, that that's open to interpretation. To me, there's no other explanation. So therefore, it would be unreasonable without an alternative explanation to come to any other conclusion. But uh, I appreciate uh, Ben's time, and I'm glad that uh, he is uh, stuck by the story, uh, at least until you know we find out more in the Mueller report. And it does seem to me as if Mueller may have shot down that report because it was going to make it more difficult for him to come to the conclusion that he did to let Bill Barr decide whether or not there was really enough for an obstruction of justice indictment or charge and to me the idea that there wasn't is at this point based upon what we currently know it's just flat out ridiculous i mean what i i can't even imagine what would have to be in the Mueller report to convince me that trump did not obstruct justice and i'm hardly alone on that Uh, this political politico story from yesterday james baker the former top lawyer of the fbi told lawmakers last fall that there were widespread concerns inside the FBI that President Donald Trump had attempted to obstruct the Bureau's investigation into his campaign's links to Russians, according to a newly released transcript of Baker's testimony. Under questioning in 2018 from a Democratic committee lawyer, Baker described numerous officials who were distressed that the president may have obstructed justice when he fired FBI Director James Comey in May of 2017. Baker said he had personal concerns and that they were shared by not just top FBI brass, but within other divisions and at the Justice Department as well. 
quote, the leadership of the FBI, so the acting director, the heads of the national security apparatus, the national security folks within the FBI, the people that were aware of the underlying investigation who had been focused on it, unquote, Baker said, running through a list of officials, he said were worried that the president may have fired Comey to hinder the Russian investigation. Baker said other FBI executives informed him that Justice Department officials raised concerns about obstruction by Trump as well. Well, of course they did. I mean, Trump went on national television and said that it was Russia that was the cause for him to fire James Comey. And I'll say it again. I've said it many times. And unfortunately, for some reason, no one else seems to understand this, to me, rather simple concept. It wasn't the firing of James Comey that was the obstruction of justice. It was the firing of James Comey that proved that that Trump telling Comey to go easy on Flynn and that he needed his personal loyalty that was obstruction that was proven by the firing. Okay, this is not that difficult, folks, but it's obvious what Trump was doing. Correct. Especially when he had praised James Comey for his handling of the Hillary situation and practically molested him on, on national television when introducing him as the, uh, the continuing FBI director, which he effectively rehired him for the job. So, the, again, it's just frustrating because this shouldn't be that difficult. But I guess for, for many people it is, including even in the so-called anti-Trump media. And there was um, another story involving uh, Individual One. Of course, any in story involving Individual One we feel obligated to talk about on this podcast. And for the record, Individual Number One is President <laughs> Donald J. Trump. I cannot, I cannot not laugh whenever I hear Michael Cohen say that. Uh, it's just so Cohen-y. But the Wall Street Journal, of all places, Wall Street Journal, owned by the same company that owns the Fox News Channel, they have a story out today that uh, effectively there is more evidence than previously known regarding that investigation by the uh, Southern District of New York into Individual One and the hush money payments that Donald Trump made to two women, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, during the 2018 campaign. They apparently uh, found that, they, that investigators spoke on the record to numerous people in Trump's inner circle and that the takeaway from this article, one, it's amazing that it's in the Wall Street Journal, and two, uh, the takeaway here is that if Trump loses in the 2020 campaign, He's going to get indicted by the Southern District of New York. Now, whether or not that will ever result in a conviction or jail time, who the heck knows? But that seems like a fait accompli, which might be part of the reason why Trump is running for re-election, which is not really healthy in a Democratic republic. That's more of what happens in a banana republic. Now, the idea that you'd run for re-election to make sure you can keep from being indicted. I mean, come on, people. It's just flat out ridiculous. That, you know, I, I used to think that... We're better than that! Well, I, I'm not so sure anymore. But that's uh, the Wall Street Journal today. And over the last two days, Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, has been testifying to Congress about a, mu a multitude of things, including the Mueller report. He now says that the Mueller report will be released basically any day now. He said yesterday that it will be within a week. I have uh, jokingly said we know exactly when it'll be released. It'll be released at, at, at the moment that we stop recording an individual one podcast, whether it's episode 20 or 21. Probably not going to be episode 20 since he's testifying again today. But my guess is probably just after we release episode 21 this coming Sunday, uh, which will be Masters Sunday. Masters Sunday will be a perfect time. Uh, the Masters Golf Tournament for uh, Barr to finally release the redacted version of the Mueller report. And I find it astonishing that, that this thing is not out yet. And while there has been some outrage about it, it hasn't been, you know, there's no been hue and cry uh, from the public, a little bit from the media. But, I mean, wh what is taking so long? What could possibly be taking this long? I, I, I mean, and the idea that almost 400 pages of an alleged exoneration. I mean, the president has claimed that this this report exonerates him. So let's see it. Let's see it. I don't buy it. It doesn't make any sense. And I got to tell you, my confidence in this idea that Bill Barr is to be trusted, which was already very low, has been diminished even further by some elements of his testimony. We interviewed Matt Lewis 
in episode 19 of the Individual One podcast. If you didn't hear that, I urge you to take a listen. Matt's a, a really good guy, a friend of mine, very intelligent, conservative. But I, I was amazed that, that Matt was so willing to say, you know, look, Bill Barr wouldn't de- you know, destroy his whole reputation and career uh, to, to whitewash this thing on behalf of Donald Trump. And I'm like, seriously? Really? Have you been paying attention for the last couple of years? I mean, this guy is conflicted all over the place, including his own son-in-law working directly for Trump right now. But his testimony, bits and pieces of it, have have diminished even further my already low level of confidence in Barr. And something happened today that I, I just found to be right out of um, worse than Fox News Channel. Maybe you know, on, on Sean Hannity's uh, bad day, this is the level that, that Barr stooped to. He was asked, he was basically given the opportunity to finally uh, show that this, this BS notion that the U.S. government was spying, using that keyword, spying on the Trump campaign during the 2016 election. He was given the opportunity to say, no, 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 that didn't really happen. That's just right-wing nutjob propaganda. That's Devin Nunez bullcrap. That's just for the cult, cult 45, as I refer to them, uh, people who will believe almost anything they want to believe. I love the poorly educated. And uh, he was straight up ass. So, you know, given on a silver platter the opportunity to say, no, there was not uh, spying by the U.S. government into the Trump campaign. And Barr said the opposite. He paused and he said the opposite. He said, no, I believe that there was spying into the campaign. And then he went on to say, I'm not sure yet whether or not it was justified. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But he, he hedged his bets by saying, you know, it might have been justified. So he's not accusing anybody of, of a crime. He's just going along with this right-wing narrative that Obama's government spied on the Trump campaign. That is not true. And I believe Barr has to know that it's not true. It is unbelievable that the the Attorney General of the United States believes, or at least says he believes, that a counterintelligence investigation against Russian influence into our election is somehow the equivalent of our government spying on the Trump campaign. It's just flat out ridiculous. People, this is an important and easy distinction. Now, I get that Devin Nunez doesn't want to make it, or Sean Hannity doesn't want to make it, or the the sycophants in the right-wing media don't want to make it, because it sounds really good to the cult that Obama was spying on Trump. You, they didn't give a damn about the Trump campaign during the time period where this happened. In fact, they unfortunately, stupidly wanted to run against Donald Trump because they didn't think he could win. They were, the, the, the extent that there was spying, it was on Russians trying to infiltrate the campaign. This is not difficult. But if, if this is the precedent now, think about how insane this is. If it is somehow inappropriate for our intelligence agencies to to investigate whether or not a foreign adversary is infiltrating a major presidential campaign, then think about what can happen in the future. That The mind boggles. But that's what Bill Barr said. And why is this important? To me, that was the smoking gun that, okay, Bill Barr is a political hack. He may not have always been a political hack. Maybe he was selling his prior reputation as, uh, you know, somebody who was reputable. He's now cashing it in because Trump, you know, uh, effectively took him out of mothballs, out of uh, essential retirement. He hadn't been in public service in a very, very long time. Now, all of a sudden, he's the attorney general of the United States, uh, all because he volunteers this 19-page memo ripping Mueller and saying the president can't be charged with obstruction of justice. And lo and behold, what happens? He gets Mueller's report a month into the job and says exactly that. And now he's doing Trump's bidding for him on this issue of spying, which I guarantee the right-wing media will be all over, taking it completely out of context. And, of course, now Barr's also going to put investigate institute investigations into the FBI actions, which, again, is all just to placate the right-wing media. None of those investigations are going to come up with anything. Devin Nunez isn't going to find any 
legitimate criminal behavior on the part of our intelligence agencies. It's all just a smokescreen. And I get back to the bottom line on that. Why do you need that smokescreen if the truth is on your side? You're the president of the United States with a cult and a, and a media apparatus that's totally invested in you. If the truth is on your side, there's no need to do this. There's no fear of being railroaded. You can't be railroaded. You're president of the United States. You have the bully pulpit. You, you run Twitter. <laughs> so the, 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 the only explanation I can come up with is they're afraid of something. They need to discredit this whole deal. And as our interview with uh, Ben Smith indicated, I mean, I, I, you know, Ben kind of understated it, but he believes that this narrative is going to dramatically change. Once again, once the Mueller report uh, is finally released, which, again, I'm predicting will be right after the next episode of the Individual One podcast, which is OK, because we do it twice a week. And that means uh, I'll just have a couple of days to read it and analyze it. And I'm sure I'll write about it at Mediate when it comes out. I do want to defend Donald Trump on one thing because I because it allows me to rip the media. And since we start each of uh, the episodes of the Individual One podcast by suggesting that the, the left wing media has completely lost their minds, I think there's another example of that. Uh, the story as we do this taping of the Individual One podcast that is either at the top or near the top of the Twitter trends involves Donald Trump and George Washington. It's because of a political report that's out today. And I'll read the first couple paragraphs to you. President Donald Trump had some advice for George Washington. During a guided tour of Mount Vernon last April with French President Emmanuel Macron, Trump learned that Washington was one of the major real estate speculators of his era. So he couldn't understand why America's first president didn't name his historic Virginia compound or any of the other property he acquired after himself. Quote, if he was smart, he would have put his name on it. Unquote, Trump said, according to three sources briefed on the exchange. You've got to put your name on stuff or no one remembers you. The implication being that no one remembered George Washington because unlike Trump, he didn't put his name on the properties that he owned. The VIP tour guide for the evening, Mount Vernon president and CEO Doug Bradburn told the president that Washington did, after all, succeed in getting the nation's capital named after him. Good point, Trump said with a laugh. All right. Now, this story has been taken very seriously as an indication of one Trump's massive ego. Correct. And his utter stupidity along with his ignorance of basic history. Correct. Well, I'm always inherently suspicious of any story that fits too perfectly into a narrative that the media knows there's an audience for or the media wants to believe in, which is clearly the case here. Well, let's look deeper into this story. There's a couple of red flags. As an expert in determining <laughs> what stories are bullcrap and what are not, with, with a finely tuned BS detector, I have a couple of red flags right off the bat. The first is, this happened last April? Last April. That's a year ago. Okay, so, I mean, it didn't say April. It said last April. So, unless there's somehow a massive misunderstanding here, this story is a year old. The fact that it took a year indicates to me that that's a problem because you're talking about a alleged direct quote there's the whisper down the lane phenomenon. Also, if it had been happened this way, I, I my guess is it would have leaked out immediately instead of marinating for a year. So that's problem number one. The second problem is what's the sourcing on this? And the sourcing on this is is pretty pathetic. It's uh, it is three people who were briefed on the exchange. Three people who were briefed on the exchange, not who witnessed it, not who, uh, you know, were there, not who uh, have some sort of documentary evidence of this occurring. So we don't even know that anybody who was there talked to Politico. I mean, th there's anonymous sourcing, which can sometimes be valid. And then there's this. Because this doesn't even pass that test, especially with a year-long lapse. 
And then there's the issue of the fact that Trump clearly is joking at the end of this. Good point, Trump said with a laugh. Now, Trump, unfortunately, is not a very funny guy. And it's it's dangerous to, to uh, pass off anything that doesn't make sense as, oh, he's just joking. And Trump has done this in the past in situations where he wasn't really joking or if he was only half joking. But uh, clearly this could have been Trump making a joke, making a joke about himself, putting his name on everything. And, you know, no one would have remembered, you know, this is, if you want people to remember, you got to put your name on it, which, of course, everybody remembers George Washington including Donald Trump. Duh. So your alternative explanation here is that Donald Trump doesn't think that anyone remembered George Washington? Come on, people. Come on. It's just flat out ridiculous. You know, I th- we got to be. We got to be. We're better than that. No, yeah. The, 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 and the media does nobody any favors here except Donald Trump because it plays right into this narrative that, we start each individual one podcast with that they've lost their minds. They can't be objective and they're diving after everything they possibly can to make Trump look bad, even when the facts don't warrant it. Now, is it possible Trump did in fact say something like that? Yeah, it's very possible. Certainly sounds like him, but there's no proof of it. And the idea that this has gotten so much play, I think, is an indication that uh, that Trump is right to get so much traction with his whole fake news narrative. To be clear, fake news is stuff Trump doesn't like. And that's what bothers me so much about it, because there is a lot of fake news out there. I just wish Trump went after that issue substantively instead of just in a way that's good for him. Correct. All right. That'll do it for this edition of the episode number 20 of the Individual One podcast. As we do every single episode, we finish with an update of our two percentages that we keep track of. One, the chances of Donald Trump finishing his first term in office. We're going to keep that at six percent. Currently, as we await the Mueller report to finally be released and uh, also going to keep the the reelection chances at 52 percent. So six percent for him to not finish his first term in office, 52 percent to be reelected. That number would jump significantly if uh, Joe Biden were to not get into the race or would be damaged significantly by uh, his so-called Me Too problem. It appears as if he might have weathered that storm. But, you know, who knows whether or not another shoe is going to drop at any moment. So uh, thanks so much for listening. Make sure that you please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Join our Twitter followers at Individual One Pod. My name is John Ziegler. Until next time, you're listening to the Global Story Network.